just want to introduce uh, Pastor Gary Benjamin. He's not a senior pastor right now, but he's, he's, he was for years and years and uh, was a worship pastor, a senior pastor, traveled as a missionary, and, but a, a worshiper and a worship leader and a intercessor and a prayer leader and a, just a revivalist and uh, has a heart for revival and, and uh, to see the bride fully awake. And he's just been a good, good friend of mine for lo- maybe 20 years, but good friend for 15 anyway. And uh, let's uh, maybe, maybe, maybe more like five, five years, good friend. It's only been two since he's, yeah. Really, we, we got some making up to do later. We're, we're working this out. Come on, come on. Let's give uh, Gary a big hand. And, and, uh, and let's, uh, let's stretch our hands out. Let's pray for him. Father, we thank, you for, uh, we thank you for everything you've brought so far tonight. Yes. Everything you've brought so far tonight. This is so good. God, we're so glad that we could set apart some time and just be with you like this, with your people. And Father, I, I pray for Gary. I pray as he brings the word of God, you will just anoint it. God, you will send it, God, like, like a river into our hearts, like a, just a fire hose. Some of us might need a lightning bolt. Some of us might need a, just the sword of the Spirit. But, God, I'm asking you to bring through him everything we need for the rest of the night. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Bill, for that wonderful invitation. You know, I feel, you know, this uh, particular plat, this podium here, this, uh, I feel like Frodo, what is it, Frodo Baggins or, you know, Bilbo or whatever behind this thing. I don't, I feel like a hobbit. I feel like I need to sit in a high chair or something, you know. Yeah. I asked uh, Pastor Gary how tall he was. He said, oh, like 6'2", and... Uh, so this is built to suit for him. <laughs> hey, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. I'll start there in just a moment. You know, this place has a, has a real special kind of place in my heart. You know, years ago, I, I came to know the Lord at the age of 16. And just a bit of my testimony, uh, one of my best friends... Uh, shared the Lord. He had an encounter with God, and he shared the Lord. And as we were driving down uh, through Mansfield, he was describing something. I grew up basically in an agnostic home. My dad was an intellectual. He's a successful businessman. Uh, I never went to church. I never one time went to church. Never heard the gospel. This is the very first time I heard the gospel. It was my friend Steve Harris. He was sharing with me how the Lord had changed his life. And I was just listening, you know, just kind of taking in the words and, you know, think, oh, man, Steve has turned into one of those Jesus freaks, you know. And as we were driving in Mansfield, Texas, he was sharing. All of a sudden, I, I looked up into the sky. It's hard to describe because in that moment of time, there was something that all of a sudden dropped in my spirit 
within my knower that there was a God, that Jesus was his son, and that he died for me. There was something that just came into my knower, and I had this encounter with him. Now, because I didn't grow up in a church or anything, you know, I, I didn't know what kind of church to go to. So I looked in the yellow pages. My, my friend Steve Harris was at a time where he was tender in the Lord, and he felt like he didn't want to be around his old friends, you know. And he didn't realize what had happened to me. So I was basically by myself. I have this, I go that night after I had this encounter. Steve told me how to pray. I knelt down and I said, Lordeth, would you cometh into my hearteth, as Stephen has said. <laughs> it's the only kind of prayer I had ever heard. And uh, so anyway, I get to the yellow pages because I want to start going to church. And I look through the yellow pages and uh, I could see, um, you know, there was a Baptist, a Catholic. I saw this, but here's what, where I rested on. When I saw Church of Christ, I said, now that's the place for me. So I go to the Church of Christ. The Reverend was Reverend Stone at the Church of Christ. I'll never forget it. It was such a prophetic thing for me, you know. Anyway, I was a rock and roller. I had hair, you know, down here. I was in a band when I came to know the Lord. And uh, so I met this guy who was just real stirred, you know. He was one of the on-fire Church of Christ people. And, uh, you know, because I was sitting in the back. You know, I had my Good News for Modern Man Bible, and I was just looking through. I could see those stick figures, the pictures that were in there. How many had a Good News for Modern Man Bible? And I remember looking through those pictures, and I would look at the cross, and, and I, I don't know, I was just having all these God encounters, uh, you know, back in the back seat of this Church of Christ with Reverend Stone. And uh, so anyway, I got to where, you know, I wanted to be baptized, and they wouldn't baptize me because my hair was long. You know, evidently, I discovered later that to, uh, to a church of Christ, salvation is equivalent, or baptism is equivalent to salvation. There had to be a process of confirmation. I'm into that. But I was just so hungry for God, I wanted to get baptized. And so uh, anyway, this friend, this zealous friend, I knew that I played the guitar, and he asked me if I would come in and, and play worship, some worship songs uh, in the Church of Christ. And so, you know, I didn't know any worship songs. I didn't even know any Christian songs. But I remember one song that George Harrison wrote. It was called My Sweet Lord. I had, had absolutely no idea in the background, instead of singing Hallelujah, he was singing Hare Krishna. I had no idea. And so I learned this song. My sweet Lord, I thought it was singing hallelujah. <clears throat> I found out later, Hare Krishna was offensive to the Church of Christ people. <laughs> but anyway, as I was, as, as I got there, I learned these songs, you know. I learned, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. <laughs> and I learned, I think there was another song, This Little Light of Mine. These are classic hits. You can look them up if you don't know them. <laughs> but so many children showed up for this thing that in the children's room that they invited me into the sanctuary before the service. And there I was, this 16-year-old, hair down here, you know, long, straight hair, at the front of the church singing, My Sweet Lord. And the parents lined up in the back. 
and they kicked me out of the church. <laughs> Literally, I was kicked out. My very first church I attended, I was kicked out of. And I was so wanting to get baptized. This guy, he didn't tell me that for three months, but the parents had gotten in and went to Reverend Stone. They said, we want that hippie out of this church. It was the greatest thing they could ever have done for me. And so I, uh, you know, he said, hey, listen, I'll take you someplace that will baptize you. I went, really? Where is it? He said, it's in South Arlington. And I was baptized in the next building. Pastor Gary, what is it the next building over, right? Is it one behind us, yeah. MP Bishop baptized me here in this property. This this place is one of my memorial stones. I gained put all my rock and roll buddies on the front row. And MP Bishop, when I went to interview him, he just asked me one question. He spoke in King James. He said, have ye been born again? And I said, yes, I have. He said, that's good enough for me. And so they baptized me here. So it's a special place. You know, some years after that, you know, I kind of got initiated into this whole, the whole Christian thing, you know, in the church and began uh, to be discipled a bit. And I got everything, everything. I, I, I love studying the Bible. It was just kind of my thing. You know, I would spend hours a day studying the Word of God. I bought a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, a King James Thompson Chain Reference Bible. That I carried that thing to school with me. It was so big that on your desk, if you stood up, the desk would tilt over. That's how big it was. And I loved, I loved all, the, I loved going to church. I loved all the worship services. I loved studying the Bible, man. I was just in the Word of God all the time. I loved witnessing. I was out on the street sharing Jesus with all of my friends. But there's one thing that I just did not connect to, and that was prayer. I, in fact, I hated <laughs> prayer. I'm going to tell you how I got birthed in prayer. Can I tell you that real quick? This is my testimony. That I was, you know, I was part of this discipleship thing, and, and uh, in fact, my wife and I, by the way, let me introduce my wife to you. This is the most incredible, precious woman. That I've been married to her for 35 years. Would you, sweetie, stand up? She, she is the mother, one of the most incredible, I don't, I don't know of a better mother on the planet. And of our five children, and we have 12 grandchildren, by the way. Yeah, thank you for, thank you for the moment of intercession that I felt just instantly from some of you. But I just hated this thing. We were in this discipleship program together, and we had to make a commitment. We had a card. We had to make a commitment on this card that you had to pray one hour a day. And there was 300, it was for one year, 365 days. There was these little boxes you had to check off. And the ones that you didn't check off, and, and you had to be, you had to have integrity about this, because this, after all, was a discipleship program, right? Right? And so I was, so anyway, I had my card, and I, uh, I uh, looked at it, and I thought, well, I'm going to do this. We had to make this commitment. So I, 
I, I had a big walk-in closet in my house, in my bedroom, and I cleared everything out. I put maps on the wall. I put, you know, names of the, you know, the, all the senators and the House of Representatives, you know, in both the national and state governments. I, I did, you know, all the people in church, all my family. I just had this stuff completely plastered in this, in this room. And I thought you had to do this because Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet. And I thought, well, that's the place that I've got to make. And so I put all of this stuff, I put pillows on the floor, and uh, I, I did all of this stuff, and uh, my prayer time was from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. And so I called it the dreaded hour of prayer. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the edge of the bed, looking at that prayer closet, <laughs> and thinking, I'm just about to go in there. And I tell you, it was like 8.59, 9 o'clock, I went in and closed the door and knelt down, and I'm telling you, something happened to me. I, st- I looked at that wall with the, you know, the maps. I started praying over the nations. Man, the anointing of God started flowing through me with faith. I started making declarations, declaring the word of God. I started interceding over the president, over the, you know, the House of Representatives, the Senate, the you know, the judicial branches of both national and state government. I started praying over my family. I started praying over the church, the pastor. I started praying over missionaries and all that stuff. And then I, I looked down at my watch because I had given out. I looked down at my watch, and only five minutes had passed. <laughs> I thought, oh, God. <laughs> and so... My long journey in prayer began. And so you would see me walking into the prayer room at 9 o'clock, the dreaded hour of prayer, and I would just sit in there, and I would try to pray. You know what happened to me? I just ended up starting to say, I just, one prayer came. I'd say, Lord, anything, anything. And I would cry and say, God, anything, I'll do anything. Just get me out of this prayer room. (laughs) Anything. I said, Lord, I'll do anything. And I would lay on the floor and I would say, Lord, anything. 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 365 days, clicked off every box. When that commitment was over, I shut the prayer room door. I said, prayer is not for me. And so fast forward a couple of years, Jerry and I get married. We're in love. God's done such an incredible thing. We're one of the very first candidates at Shady Grove to be prophesied over. Have you guys ever heard of presbytery where they lay hands on you and prophesy over you? And so we kneel down. Jerry and I kneel down. We're, we're there before the three prophets, these men of God. And we're knelt down in front of them. We'd been fasting waiting on a word from God. And, and the prophet says, You have said unto me, O man of God, anything, 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 anything. I, st- I started weeping just like I'm doing right now. Because all of a sudden, I realized that he's not some distant deity out there. He was the present one. He's the one who heard every prayer that I prayed. 
He was in that room with me the entire time. And I'm telling you what, that absolutely revolutionized my life. In that moment, I was birthed into this place called prayer. And I'm not saying that I'm a... I'm very far in this. I've been doing this, you know, something like 40 years, and I don't feel like I'm advanced in this at all. I don't know about you. How many of you guys have just kind of been those who have been contending in the spirit for a long period of time? You still feel like a novice, don't you? You just never really get your, you don't ever really feel like you get your stuff together. And so I want to share, I want to kind of stir us tonight a bit in this place of prayer. I so appreciate what Pastor Gary just said. I, don't, I can't think of any man who preaches more solid Bible than this pastor, right? I mean, just talk, talking about the Word of God. He just preaches the Word. And uh, I so appreciate the template that he laid down. And I had never seen that. I've never seen that pattern so clearly in Scripture, Pastor, how that is true. And I've experienced that. Breakthrough and... Uh, this whole, you know, prayer, breakthrough, and then having that opposition. And many times I haven't found myself back in the prayer room. I found myself back, you know, crying somewhere, you know. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> so join with me here in, in uh, James chapter 5. Um, yes, James chapter 5. I want to begin with verse 7. I'm going to stir us tonight a bit as well. I'm going to call it the cry of a contending community. The cry of a contending community. You know, uh, James describes this. Chapter 5 in, in James, he, he describes the praying, really he describes the culture of a praying church. It's a whole chapter that leads up to this dynamic description of the culture of a praying church. And so James begins here, and uh, I just want to echo a bit of some things that have already been said. He says, therefore, verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the earthly, I mean the early and latter rains. And also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that, can you imagine James speaking this in the early church and how we must approach this verse when we hear him say, you know, do this, establish your hearts because the Lord is coming, the Lord is at hand. And so I'm going to just say something. We are living in a time of tremendous prophetic fulfillment. The last 70 years has been some of the most incredible fulfillment of prophecies, and specifically the emergence of Israel on the scene. I mean, before that, you could not interpret the, you know, the Bible. And you know, for those, those who study the end times, there are those who, who have a hard time getting, you know, when it comes to the book of Revelation, there's those that have a hard time getting into the book of Revelation, right? And then there are those who have a hard time getting out of the book of Revelation. It just seems like those are their two extremes. And so until just before that, I mean, most of the theology that seminaries are teaching was theology that was developed in the 1800s before there was the emergence of Israel. It changes everything. Israel 
this fulfillment of biblical prophecy, it changes everything. All of a sudden, revelation makes sense. Before that, it didn't. So they came up with all sorts of kinds of conclusions in order to explain these verses that we find in the book of Revelation. But I will say that it is very clear that we are living in extraordinary days of prophetic fulfillment. But let's not get ahead, right? And the reason why I say this is because not every prophecy has been fulfilled. We've yet to see the emergence of the Antichrist to Thessalonians 2. There's no worldwide mark of the beast or a single world currency, the temple where the Antichrist will declare himself and, and be worshipped as God is not even built. And although the stage is set for all of these things, it's not, hap- it's not yet. And I say that so that we can kind of calibrate where we are in the prophetic timetable. It's clear that we are living in a tremendous, extraordinary period of prophetic fulfillment. And the spirit of Antichrist is growing in the earth right now. The vicious, violent spirit of Antichrist that we saw tonight in Paris... That spirit of Antichrist has been loose and lawlessness is beginning to flood the streets of the earth. That's the, that's the age in which we're living. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because we need to see where we are in the prophetic timetable. As Pastor Gary said, the end doesn't happen until the gospel's been preached into all the earth. Acts chapter 2. Peter, he prophesies in Acts chapter 2. What does he say? He says, in the last days, there's going to be this tremendous outpouring of the Spirit of God. He was referring to what was happening then and what's going to happen at the end of the age. And that prophecy that he's prophesied there in Jerusalem on that day, he was talking about another day. He was talking about it because there's going to be a time the Spirit of God is going to be poured out, but there's also going to be signs in the heavens and signs on the earth. He's talking about another day. He's talking about the day that precedes the coming of the Lord. Yeah? And so we're living in a time, let me tell you what's happening. We're, you know where, the, where we are in the prophetic timetable? We're, we're in the unprecedented outpouring of the Spirit of God on the earth right now. It's happening right now. We're seeing an, an unparalleled, massive Harvest of souls taking place all over the world. The only place that it's not happening is in the West. But the global South, brothers and sisters, is on fire. The Spirit of God is poured out. There are so many thousands and thousands of people every single day coming to know Jesus. There's a massive harvest taking place in the earth right now. You're talking about a praying church. Just step into one of those third world churches you know, where there's 60,000 people. I'm talking about there is an intensity and a fire that you cannot even begin to imagine. It is touching nations. It's revolution. It is just kind of completely stirring up cities and changing nations happening all over the world. We're living in that day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm saying, in light of all the prophetic thing, it's not too late. It's time to contend. How many are believing, how many believe that we could see a moral and cultural awakening in America? (laughs) It's not too late, is it? 
there's still time. There's still time. You know what? This is why I'm talking about this contending church, this contending type of prayer. And so James says, you know, brethren, be patient. Man, the Lord is, aren't you glad he's patient? Aren't you glad he's patient? You know, a farmer has to wait. If you live, we lived in Israel, and in Israel, there's two times it rains a year, you know. It's called the early and the latter rain. It's in the fall and the springtime. And the farmer waits for both of those for the crops to be harvested. And the father is pouring out his spirit. It's not his will that any perish, but all come to repentance. Amen? He is so patient. He is patient. He is patient. He says, be patient, brothers. Don't don't grumble against one another. He goes on to say in verse 9, he said, least you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Can I tell you something that that I'm uh, more burdened about right now is I'm not so much concerned about what days that lie ahead as much as I am about that day I stand before him. You hear what I'm saying? You know, I don't know what's going to unfold in the coming days, but I do know this, that the scripture is very clear. Acts 17, 31, he says, because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has chosen. Who is that man? And he has appointed having furnished proof of all men by raising him from the dead. In Romans 2, 16, it says, in that day, that day, that day, he says, when God will judge the secrets of men's heart by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things done in our body. He's talking to Christians. For the things done in our body, whether good or bad. All of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't believe it's for condemnation. But I believe it's going to expose the secrets of our heart, our deeds done in this body, whether good or bad, are going to be exposed on that day. And we're going to stand alone before him. And the reason why I say this is because James is very clear. There is a judge at the door. And we need to, in the United States, because we are the most affluent nation on the planet, Much of the, one of the themes of the book of James is that how the riches of this world can slowly and slowly lull us to sleep in spiritual passivity, and he says, you know, be aware, rich, the riches will deceive you. Jesus said that no man can serve, uh, you know, riches and himself. I, I had a man, a good friend of mine, who's a good friend of mine now. He's a very rich man. He, uh, at one time, he was an on-fire believer. He was one of the leaders in Youth with a Mission. And he had some things that happened in his life. And he fell away from the Lord. He's no longer a believer. And he told me, you know, one day I was... Once, I was I was religious just like you, is what he said. But he said, I'm not anymore. And I thought to myself, what Jesus said, because this guy is all about money. He became all about riches. And what Jesus said, he said, you can't serve both. 
And I, I thought when he said it, because he hates God, and he hates, he hates the expressions of the gospel or the word of God. He hates it. When I say he has a disdain for it, that's exactly what Jesus said. You will love one and hate the other. And so I say this because there's two parts to, the, to this standing before Jesus on this day when James says there is a judge at the door. He's looking. He sees. Because here in America, we need to hear this message. We, we don't need any more bless me sermons. Jesus. And I, I'm all about blessing. I want to see us blessed. Amen. But somehow, subtly, we change the gospel to be about us, and it's not about us at all. And so, you know, we, we stand, we're going to stand before him on that day. You know what the fear of the Lord is? The fear of the Lord is having a revelation of that day. It's that day. Now, in Ephesians 1, we talk about this. We pray this apostolic prayer a lot. You know, Lord, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, the eyes of our understanding being open, that we may know what is the hope of his calling. You know what he's talking about there? You know what we need wisdom and revelation for? We need to have revelation to know that day, the hope of our calling. Because that day, in the light of that day, what you and I have to suffer, what you and I have to endure, what you and I have to sacrifice, every yes that we say, every expression of, of following Jesus, of taking up our cross. It only makes sense in the light of that day. And he's saying in Ephesians, there's three things that he says that we have to have a revelation of. And the revelation is this, that we have a revelation of that day, that we would know the hope of our calling. And number two, that we would know the riches, the treasure that we are to him. He is to us. And third, that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power. Who works enough. Can you imagine being lit up with those three truths? Can you imagine how that would revolutionize your life? Revolutionize your life. You know, the Bible says that that's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that day, looking for that day. Jesus said that's how he defines the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is this, that you, that somehow that revelation has come and it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer and brighter and brighter until it begins to shape your life, your intentions. Because, you know, it doesn't matter what you go through. It doesn't matter the tribulation or stuff that we have to walk through because in the light of that day, it only makes sense. Do you see what I'm saying? We have to have a revelation of this. You know, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, Right? I think of this in terms of revelation. Here's, here's it now. You may want to write this down in your notes. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. I'm just kidding. Some of you guys were. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. So Shakespeare knows everything about Hamlet, the story, where it's, where it's going to end up, right? But Hamlet cannot know Shakespeare, right? There's no way that Hamlet can know Shakespeare, Right? Unless Shakespeare writes himself into the story. Does that make sense? Do you know you can't know God unless he writes himself in it? These truths, you can't see them. You can't see them. 
They have to be revealed to you. And Ephesians 1, he's saying this. He says, you know, ask. Let the Spirit of God send the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you that the eyes of my understanding be enlightened that I may know what is the hope of your calling. That that revelation, God, would you pour it on my heart. Let me say it this way. You know, there's three, there's three aspects of prayer. There's ask things that you ask for, things that you seek for, and things that you knock for. There's things that we ask for. Give us this day our daily bread. If you, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. He'll speak to you. But then there are things that we seek for. We seek for the knowledge of God. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. And one of the things that I believe that we need to lay hold on is we need to lay hold on that day. Forget about all the stuff that's just going to happen in the end times. If we would just focus on that day. I remember listening to a runner describe she was a hurdler. And she said, I looked down, it was a 50-yard, I think it was a 50-yard dash, maybe it was 100 yards. And she was a hurdler. And she said, I just look at the finish line. And I just... It's, she says it's almost because I'm so focused on the finish line and I get into a certain rhythm that I don't even notice the hurdles. If, we, if, we were, if, that, thing, if that day, brothers and sisters, that day where we stand before him is so vivid in our hearts, is so lit up inside of us, and we're filled with it, I'm telling you what, we'll get, we'll get past a lot of things. James is saying this. The judge stands at the door. You kind of connect with this a little bit, huh? Do you? Two of you. I'm so glad. Bless you. <laughs> it's this revelation. We've got to have it, that we would know the hope of his calling. Because the judge is standing at the door. He says, so don't grumble. He's talking about also enduring. He says, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. Verse 11, it says, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with whatever oath, whatever other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. What he's saying is, listen, hey, look at, Look at the prophets who suffered and, and saw their end. See, see what happened with Job. And this is what he says about let your yes be yes. Basically, when you're starting to go through a bunch of stuff and you start to run into a bunch of opposition, here's the deal. He says, don't, don't make a bunch of commitments during that time. Don't make a bunch of oaths. Don't, don't start making a bunch of things. Don't start saying things. Can I tell you what happens with a lot of believers? They begin to come into some, some stuff in their lives, and they begin to start suffering a bit, and there's some opposition in them. And immediately what they start doing is they start declaring some things that they shouldn't be declaring. You know what I'm saying? All right. Now to get to the point of it. That was just, some, that was just kind of an intro over here. Let me give you this. Verse 13. James begins to start describing this culture, this praying culture of the church. He says, any sick, I'm sorry, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray, he says. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone 
among you sick. Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, he says, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And say this line, I know Pastor Gary shared this last uh, week. The, say it with me. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. Say the word earnestly, that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And James is talking about a praying culture. When fervent prayer, listen to me now, when fervent prayer is the center of a community, the power of God is released through prayer that touches the practical, physical dimensions of our lives, from healing to deliverance, from restoration to wholeness. This is what he says. And it also changes nations. And this can only be a reality when prayer is not the last resort, but the first response. You see, James is describing the culture of a praying church. That it's not the last resort, but it's the first response. But he defines prayer this way. It's not just prayer. It's not just some prayers that we pray, but it's this effectual, fervent prayer, this contending prayer that changes everything. You get this, right? He says, you know, in this case, because, you know, I, I, I can't agree with this more than what our pastor just said. He said, prayer is not, basically, I, I say it this way, prayer is not a department of the church or a ministry, but it's a value. It's the operating system for which everything runs. Prayer was never meant to be pushed to the periphery, brothers and sisters. It was never meant to be, you know, on the periphery. But it was meant to be the highest, be the center of our highest effort and priority. Not regulated to a few intercessors or delegated to a team. It was meant to be a whole heart, whole community response. It's not a side thing. It's not a department. It's not a ministry. It's not a team that we put over here. That's not the prayer of a church. It's the center activity. There are two things in the Bible that we see the scriptures talk about. And it's prayer and the ministry of the word. Those two things go together, prayer and the ministry of the word. It's not just prayer, but it's also prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. It begins with prayer and goes from there. Prayer is not just something, it's not just some kind of a side thing. We don't just have a G-hop because it's a great ministry to have. We have a G-hop because it's at the center of God's priority and activity amongst the church. And I see something really happening in the prayer movement that instead of it being the ones who have to go outside of the church to start the houses of prayer because there's no room for prayer in the church, I see something changing. Just like what's being modeled right here at Grace is the local church beginning to take on the, this engine of prayer or begins to be the center activity around which everything circles the activity in which everything revolves. 
Man, that is good preaching. So the prayer room is not just an altar of affection. And I, man, I don't think there's anybody more anointed to lead us just gently into the presence of God like Tom Grossman, <laughs> or Bill, as I affectionately call him. <laughs> this guy that I've known for some 22 or went five, three, I don't know how many years now, two years. But prayer is not just an altar of affection or adoration. It is an, it is an, an instrument of weapon. An immense spiritual power. That changes something. You know, I was in Israel and we were about to go and uh, start a house of prayer in the capital of Europe, Brussels. And I was praying with Rick Writings one day. Rick's the director and founder of Sukkot Alel. We were friends. We were praying together one day. And he says to me, he says, you know, Gary, I believe there are two, he gives this prophecy, I believe there are two medical doctors who are going to be key to starting the Brussels House of Prayer. And I went, thank you, Rick. I mean, what do you do with that, right? So we moved to Brussels. And... Uh, we were there nine months. We just started in our living room. You know, we saw a little community, what, maybe 50, 60 people raised up there in Waterloo. Just, right, you know, Waterloo is where Napoleon met his Waterloo, you know, whatever. It's not an ABBA song, you know. How many of you young people didn't even relate to that? Those... Yeah, okay. See, we, you guys, some of you young people, you, I just got to say this real quick, because you didn't experience some things that we got to experience. You missed eight tracks, that's what you missed. <laughs> there was no rewind or fast forward on an eight track. If you wanted to listen to the song in your car, you just kept driving until it came around again. That's how you listened. And how many of you guys had a, um, had a Walkman disc player when they came out? How many of you? I remember, I remember I think I bought one of those for like $180. You can buy 10 of them now for 10 cents, you know? <laughs> how many of you guys had one of those Walkmans? Raise your hand if you had a Walkman. Yeah, okay, look at you, yeah. See, some of you guys are really relating to this. You're connect All of a sudden now, you're really beginning to connect with me. <laughs> now, how many of you guys on your Walkman, you know, you had this thing. You had, you had a setting called Bass Boost. Bass Boost. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Because if you were listening, you know, you're listening. And you think, you know what? That doesn't have enough bass on it. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom. More bass. Just like that. It was amazing. You could walk with it. You'd have to put it on anti-skip. How many know what I'm talking about? The anti-skip. <laughs> yeah? 
You could walk with it. It was a bit like carrying a manhole cover as you walked around, you know. You carried around, and you, and they had this incredible thing called shuffle on there, which it was, it was a, this shuffle, and you didn't know what song was going to come out. I mean, you were clueless. Out of the ten songs that were on your CD, you had no idea which song was going to be next. It was mysterious. Walking around with that Walkman, and because it was on anti-skip, you know what I'm talking about? The battery only lasted about 10 minutes, so if you were on a 30-minute jog, you were basically just carrying that for 20 minutes. <laughs> so, see, some of you guys that were younger, you missed all of that. You missed those experiences. And so I have no idea where I am right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Brussels. Yes, thank you. And so he tells me this. He prophesies over me. And so we were moving to Brussels. We started there in Waterloo. We started praying. Uh, you know, God just showed up. It was powerful. Uh, we just, you know, as we were contending, the Lord came and said, I'm going to show you that you're making a difference. And if you've ever lived in Europe or Brussels, you'll know that this is such a significant thing. And this was in February. We were praying. And the word of the Lord came in this prayer meeting, and he said, I want you to know that I'm going to send a physical sign to know that there's breakthrough that's happening right now in this place and in Europe and in this capital. He said, it's going to become unseasonably warm. Now, we lived in Brussels for uh, four years. On June, we were celebrating, I think it was June 18th when the, uh, the Battle of Waterloo took place. On June 18th. It was like 38 degrees. That's June. That's a typical time in Brussels. Cold, rainy. It only gets warm two, about two months out of the year, July and August. And it kind of goes into the September a little bit. And so the word of the Lord was just to show that you're breaking through, that something happening, that I'm going to send a sign and it's going to become unseasonably warm. And what happened in February, March, they had the warmest temperatures that lasted all, all the way through the summer. They kept saying, it's record. We've never seen this before. And every time we heard a report on the news, I said, it's unseasonably warm. We would shout, glory to God. There's something breaking through here. We're contending, and there's effort. There's something, being ha there's something happening, and God is confirming it. So we, we, we were doing that, and so we kept praying. And then one day I was doing a worship thing at the parliament down in the uh, down in the center of the heart uh, for the European Coalition for Israel. And while I was doing this worship thing, I heard this guy, this British voice, distinguished British voice. He reads, he reads from the book of Isaiah. And I, my heart just leapt. And so here I am, you know, just leapt, and we connect. And I, I start talking to him afterwards. And he introduces himself. My name is Roger. Here's my, here's my wife, Rachel. He has a much more distinguished voice. And in the process, they tell me they're two medical doctors. And I said, I said, do you guys have a heart to start a house of prayer? He said, that's why we moved to Brussels. We don't know how to do it. And in that moment, they had a four-story house, four-story building, about a, it, it's what, maybe 100 yards from what would be called the White House of Europe. And we started praying night 
and day in that place, started declaring. And I can't even begin to tell you when a contending people begins to start praying, when something begins to start happening, let me just say this. The spiritual atmosphere begins to change. It's not, guys, there's time for this in America. The spiritual atmosphere began to change in the city. Hearts and minds began to be open to the gospel. The spirit of oppression started breaking off of the city. I can't even begin to tell you the description of of a, a great movement that began happening in young people in that city there in Brussels across the nation. And you're saying that, is that a result of the prayer? And I'm saying, yes, it's a result. It's called divine coincidences. I don't care what you say. It's the answer to prayer. It's God moving in the midst of a contending people. You see, when James is talking about the culture of the church, it's not just some kind of prayer, not some kind of thing that we do, some kind of model that we perform. It's not, it's not all of that. It's when our hearts begin to be lit up in his presence. And we begin to catch a heavenly vision. There's something that begins to stir within us. We have this focus upon the beauty and the reality of who he is. We begin to understand that there is is nothing limiting in who he is. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. When we begin to lay hold upon the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us who believe, when something begins to start laying hold of that, then we start thinking, Man, God can move in our city in a powerful way. God could do something in a powerful way. James is saying, you know, I, my son, my youngest son, my kids serve uh, in the city, uh, through in the city in different ministries, youth pastor, worship, and campus pastor, and uh, but my youngest son, who's a he serves as a missionary in Cyprus. And his birthday, what he wanted to do was go to all of the revival sites. We were, you know, living over in Europe. And he wanted to go to England and go to all the revival sites, you know. And I remember going to Reese Howe's house. And I stood outside of Reese Howe's house. And we looked into that living room, and I started thinking about all the stuff that happened in that living room and how history was shaped by a praying community right there. You know, it could happen at the G-Hop. It could happen at the G-Hop. History could be written from a little room right over here in this back section of the property. And I believe history is being written there. You know, there's something about, let me give you three things. I'm going to close out here. Let me give you three things about, three distinctives about fervent prayer because James is talking about there's a distinctive thing about It's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Let me give you distinctives about this fervent, contending prayer. First of all, it has a sound. It has a sound. And these are things, observations. Now, how many of you guys have children or had little children? I'm watching my my daughters with their kids, and it's amazing how they can distinguish the sound of a cry. You know, mother, you know what I'm talking about, mothers, some of you guys? You know when it's a mad cry, a hurt cry, you know, you know what different levels, of, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You can hear, you can sense, you, you just hear it. 
And I, on the other hand, when the kids are crying, I hear something, I think immediately there's something wrong, and my daughter will go, no, I'm not even getting up for that. I'm not even going to go downstairs for that one. I'm thinking, but man, it sounds intense. No, there's a distinctive sound. They know. There is a distinctive sound when it comes to fervent prayer. There is a sound that catches the ear of God, if you know what I'm talking about. By the way, all righteous people's prayers are answered. That's right. But there's something about the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. There's a sound. You know, you can trace the prayer movement, this movement that we're in right now. You can trace it if you swim all the way upstream. You can trace it back to 1959 to a little graveyard right outside in the foothills of Seoul, Korea. Did you know that? That's where the modern prayer movement was birthed. And it was Yungi Cho's mother-in-law. And she was fed up with her, (laughs) with the the ministry of her son-in-law that wasn't getting it done. And she began to go up to that area, the only place that she could find to pray where she could get out and really pour her heart and begin to contend. And she found a place, what they call grottos up there, and she found a place where she would put a, a wooden tarp and she would begin to cry out to God. And, and as she began to cry out, the people around her, where they would hear the cries all through the night, and they called her a loco woman. But soon, people started joining her on this mountain and beginning to pray until there were hundreds of people on that mountain praying all night. It was on my bucket list one day to go to Seoul, Korea, to go to the house, I mean, go to the mountain, prayer mountain. And I went to the prayer mountain. And, you know, I got there because I was all excited. And it's one of my bucket lists. And, man, I, I, I was going to fast for the two days that I was there because I was going to be really serious. I was going to be intense. And, uh, you know, I got up about 6 in the morning, and I could hear a man in one of those grottos beginning to pray. I don't know what he was saying, but man, it stirred me. I went and got one of those grottos, and I started praying, and I prayed my burden out in about 45 minutes. I could hear him down there. I got out and walked around and uh, came back in. He was, there, he was there the whole day up into the nighttime. I went to the all-night prayer meeting, and as they were praying, there were only 10,000 people there that night praying. It was all the, because normally they have more than that. It was just 10,000 people that night praying. And the, the intensity of the prayer, I'm just saying, there is a sound of fervent prayer. I've yet to hear it, really, here. Let's just say this. I've yet to hear it in a long time. And I led a small team to the place, Ivory Coast. And we went there to study Dion Robert's church, this church of 60,000 people, absolutely shaking the nation. And we went there with our pads. I remember it was just a small team. It was Robert Morris and Wayne Wilkes and I. And we went there to study. We went there to study this church to see what what was happening. And we were going to look at all of the departments and we are going to research it all. But what we found out was beginning about 4 a.m., there was the sound of fervent prayer that lasted all the way till about noon. And we started realizing this is it right here. This is what's changing this nation. Once again, it's not just prayer. It's prayer and the proclamation of the word. 
But prayer, an anointed proclamation of the word, proclamation of the word comes out of prayer. And so there's a sound, a fervent prayer. And it's, it's the spirit of unity. It's, it's hard to describe. It's a cry that, cannot, that, that you cannot describe because it's a distinctive thing. Number two, I believe fervent continuing prayer, there is an expectancy. There's, there's something about it. There's a laying hold of something. Jesus said when you pray, believe the things that you ask for you're going to receive. Where is that in the prayer movement? Where are, we, where are we contending for stuff that we know we're going to see happen? You're just stirring us, right? I remember one time we, we, had, uh, we were reaching a bunch of young people. Hundreds of them were coming to the Lord. It was here in the Metroplex. And one of the kids, one of these teenagers, um, didn't have, he, he didn't have any shoes. And I remember we, we bought him some shoes, some tennis shoes. And he was, we, we had bus routes where he'd pick these kids up. And one of those bus routes, he stopped at one of these government housing projects here in, in, uh, in Grand Prairie. And he, he had to run because he said if he didn't run and get to his house, he would be stopped and beat up and his shoes would be taken from him. So we got stirred over this. So we went to the city and we said, where is the darkest place in the city? Where is the highest crime rate in the city? And they told us it was these two government housing projects. And so we made this. You know, once again, we began to pray. We did prayer walks. I mean, we started doing all sorts of kinds of prayer. All of a sudden, God began to release strategies in this, in this apartment complex. It was the highest crime rate. When we left, you ought to go see it now. It looks like one of the nicest places to live. Years later, years later, you ought to see it. It's beautiful. And I'm just saying there was just this contending prayer for the Spirit of God to break through in this place. And how many know that the Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against, against the church? There is this binding and loosing thing that we have, that if we would get stirred in our spirit, coming together, like I said, get lit up with a heavenly vision until something begins to start moving us in this place of contending prayer. Wow. The gates of hell don't prevail against us. And so in the process of this, a family moved in, began to be the pastor of these two apartment complexes. We started doing servant projects, started leading family after family to the Lord. I was doing a a little thing at one of the Grand Prairie High School's not too long ago, and this lady, I forget her name now, uh, but she ran up to me. She was one of the ladies that was saved in that, that thing. She was, a, she was a wreck. She was a drug addict. She was just messed up. And she ran up to me, and she said, you know, Pastor Gary, you know. And I looked at her, and I found out she had just finished her master's degree. And she was a social worker. She was leading these young people to Jesus. I'm just saying there's something powerful about that. You know what I'm saying? It's this contending. You see what I see the prayer movement happening is the local church is beginning to take this thing on. But it's not just sitting in a prayer room. You see what I'm saying? It's a strategy that, 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 that reaches beyond, that changes things, that, reach, that brings darkness down. It's not too late for this city. 
It's not too late. Things can still happen. We can still see an awakening. We can still see something revolutionize this city. You know, the last thing, and I just hinted to it here. Another thing, not only is there a sound, and not only is there an expectancy for breakthrough, but there's also this last thing. It always prevails. Always prevails. You know, my wife and I are an answer to a prayer that was prayed two generations ago. We didn't know this happened, but I grew up knowing a story that took place in Hereford, Texas, up in the Panhandle. How many know where Hereford is? Hereford, Texas, up in the Panhandle there. And I grew up knowing that my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, had a ranch in Hereford, Texas, and that one day he was helping a friend dig a pit, what they call the cleachy pits. How many can know what a cleachy pit is? Because I barely do, but I remember seeing cleachy pits. So he was helping it. While he was doing that, the side of it weakened and fell, and he was crushed and killed. That was my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. And so that's the story I grew up with. And then Jerry and I are married our first year. My mother dies, and then a month later, my grandmother passes away. And while we were preparing for my grandmother's funeral, Uh, Jerry's grandmother asked me about my grandmother. She said, well, tell me about your grandmother. And I told her, you know, what I, you know, what I knew and who she was. And uh, she said, well, I, where's your grandmother? Where's the funeral? And I said, it's down near Conroe. She said, well, that's interesting because I had a friend who passed away. Uh, and, and her funeral is going to be in Conroe as well. She said, honey, what was your grandmother's name? And I said, my grandmother's name was Edith Canant. You should have seen Jerry's grandmother. She went, she starts crying. She starts crying. And I we said, what's up, Mama? She said, honey, do you know that your great-grandfather was killed? Great-great-grandfather was killed on our ranch in Hereford, Texas. And this is what she said. She said, I remember us circling as a, she was young. She was best friends with my, my great-grandmother. She was best friends with my, great, my grandmother. Get this out. She said, I remember them, our family circling up and praying for restoration. Did you get that? Two generations. Three generations, really. Can I tell you something? You always prevail. Prayer, every prayer that you pray, I'm just telling you right now, it may bypass your generation, but it's not going to stop with your generation. It's going to proceed to the next generation and the next generation until everything that's been declared is going to be fulfilled. We're, we're a testimony to that. This is, this is our testimony. We're an answer to prayer. And so there's a couple of traps, and let me just close by this. There's a couple of traps of fervent contending prayer. And one of them is, because he uses the illustration of Elijah. And there is a trap to contending prayer. One, and that's praying with the wrong motivation. That's a, that's a thing. You know, if I were to ask you who the greatest prophet in the Old Testament is, 
what would you say? Would you say Isaiah? Well, in the Old Testament. What would you say? Would you say Jeremiah? Would you say Ezekiel? But what if I told you I believe the greatest prophet in the Old Testament was Jonah? Because Jonah was the first guy to ever leave. He wasn't prophesying to the nation of Israel. He went to a pagan nation who was so violent. It's the same spirit that you see in ISIS because it's the same territorial spirit that's in place in ISIS, ISIS in northern Iraq. And he went to that he went to Nineveh, this city, this big city. And there he prophesied to this city and saw a move of God that changed the entire city. But you know, we read the story of Jonah and we have to wonder, why? You know, why did Jonah then, you know, flee? And I, I tell you why. Yeah, he he didn't want to, he didn't want to see God have mercy on it on that nation. He believed they deserved judgment. He believed the judgment of God should fall upon this on the on the city, upon the city of Nineveh, Babylon. That's what he believed. But he believed that God was going to have mercy. And you know why I know this? Is what happened? Because the Lord sent Jonah to a king named Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. And the Lord sent Jonah, this prophet, to this king. And, he, and the Lord tells him, this is what I want you to prophesy to this king. And by the way, Jeroboam was a wicked king. He said, Jonah... I want you to go and I want you to prophesy to Jeroboam. And I want you to tell him, Jeroboam, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to cause you to increase in every way. And that's what he did. But the more the blessing of the Lord came, the more evil Jeroboam became. And I'm telling you what, something happened in Jonah's heart. Because he had gone there before to the king before he went to Nineveh. And he didn't want to see God have mercy. Can I tell you? There are some people that cannot connect to the greater heart of God for all the peoples of the earth because something like that has happened. There's a judgment. There's another thing. So some of the motives can be wrong. So Jonah, as you know, prophesied, ultimately ended up prophesying, and a nation changed, or I say a city changed. And, but here's another thing. I remember one time... Uh, I was a young pastor. We just planted a church. We were in North Fort Worth. We were just laboring, you know. And, and uh, the Lord had led us on a 21-day fast. And I remember praying, getting into that, and I began to come under uh, the spirit of travail. I, I cannot even begin to describe those, those days in prayer as I began to contend like I've never contended before. There was one time that I was contending so hard, my nose was bloodied. I, was, there, I, had, I had slobbered. I was just contending so hard. Right in the middle of that, this is what the Lord speaks to me. He, he says, he says, if I use you to do all of the work, but I choose somebody else to receive the harvest, will you still pray as hard? And I remember thinking, really what it, it, it revealed my heart. You know what I was believing for? Increase in my ministry. I was believing for my church to grow. I was believing for all of those things. I wasn't contending for his greater heart. And there's another thing. 
And lastly, you can pray with the right motives, but with the wrong expectation. This is Elijah. And Elijah, as you know, had heard the Lord evidently because he just kind of shows up on the scene and he begins to prophesy uh, to King Ahab. And he says that he pronounces a drought over the land and he prays earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. And you know the day where all of the prophets of Baal were assembled on that Mount Carmel. How many times, sweetie, have we been on the top of Mount Carmel, the traditional side of Mount Carmel? And we, we see there and we think about what had happened, that scene where the two altars were made and the prophets of Baal were laid out. And you know the, the big standoff that took place and how the fire of God fell and how the prophets were killed. And how he went and he prayed until the rain began to descend and the drought was broken off the land. And you know what happened after that? Opposition increased. You see, his, his motives were right, but his expectation was that he was going to lead a national revival. That Baal worship was going to be abolished, that, the, that Jezebel was going to be taken away from the land. But it, it wasn't. And when it says in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, it says, and when he saw that, he took off to Beersheba. And let me tell you what, that's a desolate place. If you've ever been to Israel, you know, when you start heading in that direction towards the Negev, that desert, that is the most, one of the most desolate places you can imagine. And he goes in that direction, and he... Ultimately, the angel of the Lord takes him. You know where he takes him? He said, I want you to feel. This is what the angel of the Lord, he said, I want you to get, get strong on the food that I'm providing right now because it's going to need to sustain you 40 days because I'm going to take you not back to the battle, but I'm going to take you back to the basics. That's what he did. And he took Elijah back to Mount Horeb. See, you know what? You know what was happening with you know what was happening with Elijah? He felt like he was a failure. He felt like he completely failed. He said, I'm no better than my fathers. I've not done anything. Baal worship is still on. Jezebel is still ruling. Here's the deal. God took him back to the still small voice. And what did the still small voice say to him? Elijah, you were never meant to lead a national revival. You were meant to be a forerunner. The next generation, Elisha, I'm going to anoint them. They're going to overthrow Jezebel. You see, you can have the wrong motives, or you can have the right motives with the wrong expectation. And this is the story of Elijah. When it comes to a contending prayer, I'm just saying there is, there is the right motivation with the right expectation. You know, I want you to stand with me as we go. We're going to, I'll turn over here in just a second to Tom. But I want us to pray. How many could use a dose of the fire of God in your heart right now? I, I know we're late. But how many could use a, a dose of the stirring fire of God in your heart? How many, it's been a long time. It's been a long time in your, in your heart 
Marvin, would you mind? I'm sorry, brother. Would you mind just so we could, so we're going to close out here. But it's been a long time since there's been this strong, fiery, contending spirit. Some of you may have given up on some things that you were never meant to give up on. Would you just put your hand on your heart? Those of you who really need, I'm, I'm going to believe for the fire of God to begin to be released, to begin to stir something fresh within us. See, I believe that this weekend, this is not just some, some conference. This is, this is not just some meetings that we come to and we hope we get something out of it. This, I believe there's some kind of divine shift to take place. There is a hunger in this heart, in, the, in your hearts. There's a hunger in this room. There is an intent and a desire. You can sense it in the spirit. That some of you just need a, just, just a fresh touch of the fire of God. something to begin to stir you, to begin to awaken this contending heart. That when you hear stuff like what we heard tonight, this hideous, violent surge of demonic activity on the streets of Paris, there is something that begins to stir within our spirit, the fire, and we begin to start knowing, not just praying something that makes no difference, but we're praying. We're seeing something released from a heart that's fired up because we've caught the heavenly vision. We've caught his heart. We come into agreement and we begin to release that through a fervent prayer. Father, I pray a release tonight of this fire, God, this burning hearts. This thing that we used to know. This thing that stirred us and there was an expectancy. There was faith, God. We began to see breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. And Lord, I pray that you just begin to release this fire tonight, God this contending, fervent heart. It's not too late. You know, I hear right now the cries of intercession over family members. I hear it. I can hear this sound. This cry over this, over a daughter or a son this cry of intercession that's, t- that's gone, grown a bit dim in your heart because you just haven't seen any real breakthrough. I'm telling you, it's time to contend again. Have your heart. I just hear the cries of, of a contending heart to see breakthrough. 
Lord, I just thank you tonight for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I want you to just put your hand on somebody there next to you. Just, just say, Father, I just come into agreement with every plan and purpose, every intent, every promise, every prophecy over my brother, over my sister right now. And I pray, Father, release the fire of a contending, fervent heart within them right now. Just release it, Father. Father, I pray that the prayer ministry of Grace Community Church would begin to grow like never before. There would be a fervency and a fire like never before. Lord, release it, God, in this place. Release this fire, Lord. Let it begin in in a deeper way, Lord, in this room, God. As we lay hands on one another, I pray that you would release the fire of your anointing, God, upon one another. Upon each other. In Jesus' name. Amen. God, thank you. Let's give Gary a big hand, guys. Praise God. Okay. Well, it is a little bit late, so I'm going to make a decision. We're going to start instead of 930, we're going to start at 10 tomorrow morning. Let's give you guys an extra half hour to get ready. Okay. So we let everybody know that. And then uh, I think you can leave your Bibles probably right where they are if you want to and just grab your seats. What's that? Yeah, we're not going to pick that stuff up, so. Bless you guys. Drive home safe, and then we'll see you in the morning, okay? Hallelujah.